Okay, so friends, we are continuing in our sermon series today through the book of Ephesians, and we have reached the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Okay, that's where we're at, which also actually happens to be the end of the first big section of the whole letter. Okay, chapters 1 and chapters 3 is a section of its own. How do we know that? Because Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3 closes off, okay, the chapter with a prayer that he actually originally started way back in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to go back to your Bibles or open your uh, Bible apps on your phones, you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. You'll see there that Paul begins a prayer with the phrase, for this reason. For this reason, I do not, give, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he prays for a bit, but then for some reason, he kind of veers off and starts to teach a bunch of different doctrines until we get back here at the end of chapter 3, look at verse 14, the first verse in your printouts, where you see Paul kind of restart the prayer again with the same opening phrase. He repeats, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But this time, he actually prays till the end and gets all the way to amen in verse 21. And you do kind of see this back and forth with Paul throughout Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 between wanting to teach the Ephesians these rich doctrines and these rich truths and wanting to pray for them, teach them, pray for them, teach them, pray for them. Why? Well, it's because Paul knew that unless the Holy Spirit, we'll see here him say this in our passage, unless the Holy Spirit brings these doctrines that he's taught down to the hearts of the people he's trying to teach it to, none of it would matter. See, Paul can teach these doctrines to their minds. He can write the most glorious explanations about who God is and his love. But that's as far as he can take it, to their minds. The longest road less traveled is from the mind to the heart. And Paul's utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit for that last leg of the journey. That's why he closes off this section of the letter with a prayer to God, begging him that the Spirit would would do just that in the hearts of the readers. And the same applies for us today, who's reading and studying this letter today. We have learned so much, haven't we, if you've been with us for the past few months? So much good doctrine about the forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ, about gospel unity, all of that. But look, none of it would actually mature us like effectively. None of it would actually grow us unless the Holy Spirit turns these conceptual doctrines that we've learned in the past few months into flavor, palatable to our hearts. And the question is, how does that happen? Okay, how can our hearts taste more of what our minds know about the love of God? And is there a way for us to participate in this work of the Spirit? Okay, because Paul says the Spirit does it. Well, do we have a part in it? Or are we just completely passive? How does it all work? Okay, well, let's, let's take a look at Paul's prayer here. The end of Ephesians chapter 3. This is God's Word, taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses uh, 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, fam- every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit 
in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please ignore the falling confetti. That's not intentional. Um, that's from this week's activities. Okay. Thus says the Lord. Three things I want to point out from the passage. Okay. When a doctrine turns into flavor, savored best in the person of Christ, we, the church, will be all that we can be. When our doctrine turns into flavor, savored best in the person of Christ, we, the church, will be all that we can be. Let's start with our first point. When our doctrine turns into flavor. So Paul closes this first big section of the letter by telling the Ephesians that he's bowing his knees to God. What's he doing there? He's praying that according to his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell not only in your minds, but in your heart. So he's realizing that as great of a gospel proclaimer he may be, as smart and educated as these Ephesian Christians may be, in order for Christ to dwell in their hearts, the Holy Spirit must give them the inner strength to do this, Paul says. An inner strength that apparently neither Paul's words nor their own willpower can muster up, can produce. Only the Holy Spirit can grant it. He'll allow Christ to dwell in their hearts. But here's what's really interesting. Let's think about it. The people that Paul's writing to here, are they believers or non-believers? Are they Christians or non-Christians? They're Christians. They're believers. We saw that throughout the whole letter. That's clear. Paul said in chapter 2 uh, that there are those who've been brought up from death to life. He said that there are fellow heirs in the inheritance of the kingdom. These people he's writing to are believers, genuine born-again Christians. So then why does Paul pray for the Holy Spirit to make Christ dwell in their hearts? If they're born-again Christians, shouldn't Christ already be dwelling in their hearts? You see, absolutely, he should. So then why did Paul ask for that? It seems redundant. Well, let's go to verse 18. Here's why. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength, Paul says, to comprehend, to comprehend with all the saints this, this vast love of God. So apparently, Paul's saying, there's a kind of comprehending of the love of God that these genuinely born-again Ephesian Christians have not yet fully grasped. And apparently, it's possible for genuine born-again saved Christians who has Christ in them, who knows the love of God, to not yet fully comprehend it. But Tez, I know all the doctrines, okay, that pertain to God's love. I know the doctrine of original sin, 
that I'm dead in my sin, and unless God loves me, unless his grace first initiates the relationship, I would be dead, and now I'm alive only because of him. I know that. I know, Tez, the doctrine of double imputation, where on the cross, not only is my sins taken by Christ one way, but it's double. Christ's righteousness was also imposed upon me. I know that about God's love. I know the doctrine of federal headship, where now when God looks at me, my covenant head representative, Christ, is who he sees. And no longer me. His righteousness, his holiness, not mine. So I'm saved through that. I know the doctrine of adoption. I know the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I know and agree with all of those things. God loves us. God is good. I get it. And that's great. That's good. But what does Psalm chapter 34 say? Does it say, know and agree that God is good? It doesn't, does it? What's it say? Taste and see. Have you tasted it? When Paul here is asking the Holy Spirit to make Christ dwell in your heart, he's not asking the Holy Spirit to just help you know and agree. He's asking the Holy Spirit to help you taste and see. Picture a child who lives in a polluted city. Not too hard to imagine for us. Looking up from his balcony apartment, and he sees four stars in the sky, and he goes, wow. Now his father, feeling bad for this kid, drives him out to the countryside, away from all the pollution, where he then looks up and goes, oh, wow because now he doesn't just see four, but thousands of stars in the sky. But the father, unsatisfied yet, buys the best telescope known to man, and then he tells this kid to look up to the stars through it, and this kid does, and he just loses it, right? Because he's seeing all kinds of shapes, all kinds of colors that he's never seen before. But the father then goes, you know what? I'm not done, not yet. So he gets them both astronaut licenses. <laughs> and he rents a spaceship. And he flies this kid to space where he's so close to the constellation that he feels like he could touch it. And at this point, words escape him. His heart's beating with a kind of vitality that he's never felt before and he's swallowed up by just how vast the galaxy is. Most Christians know the love of God, like this child knew the stars from the balcony of his polluted city. We believe it, we get it, we understand it, we're even impressed by it. But when Paul's asking the Holy Spirit to help Christ dwell deeper in our hearts, he's asking the Holy Spirit to take us from our apartment balcony to the Milky Way. Do you get it? Do you see it? And we have tried so many things, haven't we, church, just to get the heart's attention. We've screamed and cried from pulpits, Jesus loves you. We've bought the best stage lighting and sound systems known to man. We've made the most elaborate Christian songs with the catchiest choruses. 
We've adorned our sermons with the most persuasive words. And I'm not saying these things are bad. Do I try to make my sermon sound persuasive? Some of you are like, well, you sure do try, Tez. <laughs> do we have, you know, try to have decent music? Of course we do. I'm not saying these things are inherently bad. But I wonder if the church has relied on these things too much to where all of our bells and whistles no longer aid, but rather transgress the Holy Spirit's department. And why am I concerned about that? Because out of all the things that the church has done, just to get the gospel to the heart, just for us to feel it, you know, you know what's one thing we don't do much at all? Pray. We don't pray for it. We pray for good health. We pray for smooth travel. We pray for safe finances. We pray for numerical growth in our church even. But let me ask you, when's the last time you prayed for the Holy Spirit to help you comprehend God's love to a point where it's no longer just a concept in your mind, but an effective reality in your heart? When's the last time we prayed for that? I'm on my knees, Paul's saying here. And back then, people would pray standing up. So this is a desperate plea. I'm on my knees, because if this doesn't happen, all of this would be for nothing. I'm wasting my time up here for the next 20 minutes. If this doesn't happen, nothing's going to happen. And the only way this can happen is not according to the riches of my own glory, Paul says. It can only happen, the Holy Spirit must do it according to the riches of God's glory. So beg for it. But is there a role that we can play in this? Well, there is. It's pray. Pray like Paul did. And as the Holy Spirit grants our hearts this grace, the taste, the, whole, the, the, the love of God more tangibly in our hearts, what you'll find him do is he will do it by pointing you to a person. That's how he makes it more tangible. Let's go to our second point. When our doctrine turns into flavor, it's savored best through the person of Christ. Second point. What will you comprehend, Christian? Paul's saying here, when the Holy Spirit grants you this inner strength, how does God's love become more clear? Well, look at verse 18. You'll begin to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love, Paul says. Okay, that's great, but these are all still concepts, Paul, right? They're all still like notions, words, concepts. That doesn't make God's love feel, feel tangible yet, which is why Paul continues in verse 19 and says, and to know the love of Christ. You see that? He gets specific there. How do you make God's love more tangible? It's through the person of Christ. Look at him. He is the practical expression. He is the tangible embodiment of God's conceptual love. He's the constellation, you see? Now, seeing Jesus as the tangible embodiment in God's love, it'll do at least two things in your heart. It'll protect your heart and it'll shock your heart, okay? First, it'll protect your heart. Why do I say that? Well, do you know what a many other things are being claimed out there, even by the church, as the main display of God's love, aside from the person of Christ. You've heard it. Financial breakthroughs, 
healing from certain physical ailments, career advancements, romantic discoveries. Now, again, is God gracious to us through those things? Sure. But those things are not and cannot be the main practical expression of God's love for you in your life. Paul's writing this letter of Ephesians from where, friends? From prison. Remember? He was a single, broke prisoner in Rome because of the gospel. If you look at Paul's life and you look at the life of all of Jesus' dearest disciples, how could you ever conclude that personal wealth, longevity of life, romantic encounters, and career breakthroughs to ever be the practical expression of God's love for you? How does that make sense? You know it doesn't. If that's what you think God's love is, you will live your life in utter disappointment being constantly angry at God for breaking promises that he never made. Those are not the practical expression of how broad and long and high and wide and deep God's love is. The person of Christ is. It'll protect your heart. But second, it'll shock it. Because through the person of Christ, these notions, these concepts, these words, right, like broad, long, high, deep, it now has flesh to it. What do I mean? Let's take a look. How broad is God's love? Well, who is the forgiveness of Christ offered on the cross available for? How broad is that scope? The worst of sinners. Paul just said a few verses ago. You know, a pastor once preached on this particular passage, and he reminded his congregation of Isaiah chapter 1 that says, though our sins be red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But then he went on to saying that if you actually read all of Isaiah chapter 1, you'll see there that red as scarlet actually refers to the stain of blood on a murderer's robe. It can be white as snow. How broad is it? To the worst of sinners. Okay, how long is it? Well, how long does this forgiveness last? Again, Jesus clarifies it in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me, he says, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. See what the cross assures us of? Think about this. Because the cross of Christ, God's love for you will never again deactivate based on what you do. Why? Because it was never activated in the first place based on what you've done. How long does it last? Okay, how high and how deep is God's love? Well, on the cross, in the person of Jesus, you saw the king of heaven go to the tomb. That's how high and deep it is. In the person of Christ, the King of Heaven, stoop to the lowest of ranks so that you may be lifted up above your station. That's what makes it tangible. You see, any, any worldview, any philosophy, any religion, any book out there can make claims about how broad and how long and how high and how deep the love of their God is. You can have volumes and volumes written about it, pages and pages, conceptualizing it, explaining it, philosophizing it. But in the person of Christ, the God of the Bible is the only one who paid for it. 
He paid for it. He didn't just conceptualize. He didn't just explain. He didn't just philosophize about it. He paid for it. And that payment is what will turn four little stars in the sky into a whole constellation. Do you see it? That's what you pray for, Paul says. Not only that the Holy Spirit may show you how broad and how long and how deep the love of God is, but pray that the Holy Spirit helps your heart see this vast love of God specifically in the person of Christ, in what he's done for you on that cross. But better yet, Paul says, pray for this with other Christians. Where do we see that? Look at verse 18 again. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. With all the saints, he says. So, my encouragement for you is not just to pray for this alone. My encouragement is for you to organize different prayer groups with other Christians here and beg God to take what you know to be true by the cross of Christ from your head to your heart and perhaps better yet, organize it with Christians that you don't normally cross paths with. Go ahead and do it. For you who say that my sermons are too conceptualized and not practical enough, remember this day. <laughs> Go. Make groups. Pray for it that God will make this clear. It doesn't make 10, 15 people, just three or four people, okay? Gather the saints that you may comprehend the consolation together because it's better witness, Paul's saying here, the stars are with each other. Okay, do so. And on this note of church unity, he then transitions and he, hen he ends his prayer by focusing on that main application that actually has been the main application for the past uh, chapter or two, which is gospel unity, which brings us to our last point. When our doctrine turns into flavor, savored best in the person of Christ, we, the church, will be all that we can be. Okay, last point. So, when the Holy Spirit gives you this inner strength to comprehend with all the saints, the breadth, love, uh, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Paul says, here's the result, here's the conclusion, okay? You'll be filled with the fullness of God, he says in verse 19. That's the result. Now, what does that mean, to be filled with the fullness of God. Well, it's not a feeling, okay? This isn't, this isn't like being emotionally fulfilled. That's not what Paul's actually referring to here. He's referring more to the fulfilling of a potential, to the fulfilling of a standard of maturity that we could reach. And how do we know this? Because if you skip to the next chapter, chapter four, verse 13, Paul makes this clear. He said, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ here refers to the church attaining a kind of maturity that expresses itself in what? In unity. Till we all attain the unity in the fullness of, of God and of Christ. But to make this point of unity stick even deeper in the hearts of his readers, Paul doesn't just repeat the command again. He's been saying it for like the past three chapters. He doesn't just say it again, you know, be one, be uh, united to each other. He actually beautifully closes this prayer with a doxology. 
Now, let me explain what a doxology is first, and then I'll, I'll show you how that connects with the concept of unity. A doxology, like we do here at the end of our worship services, is an old Jewish expression of praise for God that we first started to see appearing multiple times in the Old Testament, especially at the end of Jewish temple worship. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, for example, Psalm chapter 29, Psalm chapter 96, okay, you see them. And it usually, doxology has four main parts, okay? It has a reference to glory. It has a reference to the recipient of the glory, who's God. It has a reference to the longevity of glory, which is forever. And then it ends with the word, amen. And you see all of these four aspects explicitly in verses 20 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So doxology. Okay, good to know. But how does this, ending the prayer with the Jewish temple doxology, help Paul make his point about gospel unity better? Because, remember, who Paul's writing to here? You remember that? Who's Paul writing to here? Was he writing to Jewish Christians? No. He was writing to Gentile Christians. He was writing to non-Jewish Christians. Remember that? Chapter 3, verse 1, he said, I, on behalf of you Gentiles, writing these things. So let's think about that. Paul ends his prayer for a non-Jewish Christian audience using an Old Testament Jewish temple tradition What's the point? Well, at least two. One, he's rebuking kind of the Jewish Christians back then who felt superior and looked down upon these Gentile Christians to not do that. He's, he's one of, they're one of us. And he's also encouraging these Gentile Christians who often look down upon themselves because they're not Jewish Christians to rally and have the boldness to come together under the gospel. That's the point of ending the prayer with doxology. This... Paul says, this unity, this is the proof that the Holy Spirit has made the people in your church understand and comprehend God's love in Christ. That's the evidence. Why? Because you're going to have a really hard time judging others. You're going to have a really hard time comparing yourself to the person sitting next to you when you're both too busy looking up at the constellation. You have no time for that. When the church is filled up with the fullness of God, this is what it looks like, Paul says, united. That's the main KPI. You see? And if that's true, how are we doing, CCC? How is the church in general doing, you think? Well, probably not great, <laughs> right? It's hard, Tez. You know, you say, I've been burned by people in church so much. I've been through so much infighting. I've seen leaders say the darnest things. So much hypocrisy. So much political maneuvering. So much image management. I can't imagine the church actually being all that Paul said it can be here on earth. Well, I guess it's a good thing then. Paul says in verse 20 that we have a God who's able to do far more abundantly than what we could ever imagine or think. This verse isn't about landing your next client, by the way. 
It's about church unity. So let's, let's do a small experiment, okay? What kind of quality of church unity could you imagine yourself experiencing in your lifetime? Shoot for the stars, you know? Maybe for some of you, Tez, just give me no drama. That's all I'll ask. Nothing much, no drama. If we can get no drama, that is beyond my wildest expectations. Well, that's good, okay. Maybe for some, it's a bit further along, you know. Tez, I want to have a church who loves one another enough to where not only we can endure the drama, but we can forgive and love and thrive despite the drama. Great. Let's not stop there. Dream on beyond what we can ask or think, right? Keep going. Maybe, maybe one day your church will be composed of people so filled up by the fullness of God that whenever drama appears, no one's concerned about their ego. Imagine that. No one's trying to control the narrative toward their favor, but instead they prioritize justice, mercy, and integrity with such pristine balance that somehow they're able to embrace one fully without sacrificing the other. Producing a sort of greenhouse of communal shalom that kills every social pain point in your culture as soon as it touches it. Pipe dream? Maybe. I don't know. Is it possible? You have a God who's able to do much more than what you could possibly ask or think. Can we get there? CCC? I don't know. But if we are ever to get there, pretty sermons and nice music won't do it. If we are to get there, Paul says, you got to get on your knees with fellow saints, especially the ones you don't like, and pray with them. Pray that the Holy Spirit may give you the inner strength to no longer see God's love as an abstraction, but tangibly experience it through what Christ has done for you on that cross. And when you're done praying, when you open your eyes and look at that person that you're praying with, ask yourself, whether or not you've extended the same love to the person you just prayed with. That's what you've got to do. And as you behold the vast constellation of God's love with fellow saints in those moments, may our God, who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, turn strangers, enemies even, to family through the cross of Christ. Yes, for our sake, but at the end of the day, so that to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, even after preaching about church unity through Ephesians 2 and 3 this past few months, I felt a bit of hypocrisy in my heart. I've looked at the state of where I am, 
and the demand of where I need to be in order to make this concept a reality in this church. And I am discouragingly far from the person I need to be. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We are powerless to muster the strength up by ourselves. What we can do now, Father, in this time of prayer and as we sing is get on our knees and beg you that you would send the Spirit to strengthen our inner being so that the love of Christ will be so clear the taste buds of our hearts can savor it. And when that happens, may a kind of unity in this church that we never before ever dreamt of happen so that you may get the glory as the world sees a community who loves daringly, drastically, with the blueprint of the cross. May you give us the strength. In Jesus' name, and in his name alone, do we pray. Amen.